but yeah, morning. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, and yeah, as a way of introduction, I'd like to just ask you guys if you've ever had someone do something really nice for you, like just <clears throat> unprovoked, like just a surprise. I need you guys to think about some of those things. Now, uh, I don't know if you guys know about the five love languages, and I'm, I'm not advocating for them next to the Bible as like some truth you have to live by. Um, neither am I suggesting that if you don't know what love languages are to go investigate them. You don't need that. You're okay as you are. Um, but one of my top love languages is acts of service. Um, and I remember being at one of our student camps, uh, which we call the LP, the Leadership Project, down in KZN. And on Saturday night, now I'm a guy, and, and being a guy, uh, I'll never take an iron from Gauteng and take it down to KZN, right? So <laughs> on Saturday night, it always used to be a scramble to try to find an iron so I can iron my clothes for church the next day. Um, iron my, 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 my shirt and my pants. And this one time, uh, one of the girls caught me off guard. So as I nonchalantly asked her for, um, for an iron, she was like, you know what, actually, you can bring your clothes, I'll iron them for you. I was like, Ah. <laughs> and you can guess that in my head, she immediately moved from this girl from UJ to my potential future wife. <laughs> but that, that's, what, that's what happens when someone does something nice for you. Like you, you feel it, especially when, when you can tell that it's sincere. And so um, as, as we come into this and we consider what the sincerity of true worship is. Um, I want us to, to see what happens with this woman in Bethany. Um, and I want us to see how Jesus responds to this woman serving, serving him in this way. Uh, chapter 14 in Mark is the longest chapter in the gospel. Um, and it's, it's, it's where we enter. Remember, we, we've been in Jerusalem from Christ coming in in chapter 11. And he's just been in the, the temple, in and around Jerusalem, and he's been engaging with people, right? We're heading towards, the, the, towards Passover, and that's when everyone comes to Jerusalem to celebrate. We'll talk about what that looks like. But chapter 14 ushers us into this phase where Jesus is about to enter into what many believers call his passion. And this is where he would suffer and die. Uh, this is what he came to do for the sake of sins. So let me just pray for us quickly. I know, Doug, you prayed for me. I'm not negating your prayer. But let, let me just pray as, as we read the passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you may just open up our hearts to your word and that you may be ready for us to hear it this morning. Um, may you work it in our hearts and may it play out as we seek to worship you through our lives. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. So we're going to read uh, Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, 
as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went up to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So what we see here is what a lot of theologians call uh, an inclusive. We basically have two passages, um, verses 1, 1 and 2, and 10 and 12. I'll start with them before we get into the anointing. Um, and all these three parts of Scripture are not unrelated. It might look like it, but they're not. But we see very clearly that verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 uh, are almost a continuation of one story. We see this uh, actually in, in the Gospel of Luke, where he writes them right uh, after each other. So he doesn't have the, the story of the anointing in between. And so you see from verse 1 and 2 that there are now two days before, this is now two days before the Passover. Now the Passover was a feast that was commemorated, or it commemorated the event that when God rescued and delivered his people from the Egyptians, particularly in sparing the children of Israel, from the angel of death. Remember there were ten plagues, and right in between the ninth and the tenth one, he, he sort of reminds, or he tells them to slaughter a, a lamb and to smear the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the angel, when the angel of destruction comes through, the angel would pass over the homes where the, the blood was smeared thereby the people would escape that judgment. And they were called to celebrate this with an annual feast, which was called the, Pas the, the Passover. They would kill the lamb in the afternoon and consume it in the evening. So it didn't even happen over a 24-hour period, period of time. It happened literally in the late afternoon and evening. And then it was followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happened over seven days. This was from the 14th day of the month to about the 21st. So it, it, it started with a Sabbath and it ended with a Sabbath. And, and this was meant to remind the people of Israel of the fact that they are sinful. Now, this, this is what's happening. So everyone flocks to Jerusalem to come celebrate this feast. Um, and these chief priests and scribes who Jesus has been interacting with from the time he arrived in Jerusalem, were now seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. 
Why, why did they want to do that? Because, like I said, he's been, he's been arguing with them and calling them out. But they say, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The reason they say that is because he was known as a prophet, so a lot of people would have acknowledged that he was a prophet. And so they don't want to do it during the feast because they don't want to risk a riot going out. They could have been willing to wait until the Passover was done and people went back to their homes. But what they didn't know is they were going to end up killing him during this time. And we see then in, in, in verse 10 that Judas helps them do that. He was one of the 12, and he comes along, and he, 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 he plans on betraying Jesus. Now, we mustn't just look at Judas by himself and think that he's the only one that betrayed Jesus. Yes, he, he thought about it, and he's the one who went to the chief priests and sold them out. But we have to also remember that the rest of the disciples also betrayed him. Because they all ran away when he got arrested. The only difference is that Judas's one was premeditated. And, and the reason he was going to help so much is because, remember, they wanted to do it uh, through stealth, by stealth. Um, and he was going to be the one who, who, who would be able to let the chief priests know when it was a good time to arrest him because they didn't want to do it in front of people. And so they, they even promised him money. In Matthew's account, it talks about him asking for a reward. And it, yeah, so he, he, he betrayed Jesus for a very cheap rate. And we'll talk about the rate as compared to the, the rate of the, the anointing, like the, 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 the financial price of the anointing. But essentially you have, so you have those two parts. You have this story of Jesus heading towards his suffering and death, uh, and sandwiched, sandwiched right in between, you have this beautiful um, account of true worship. This is from verses 3 to 9. Now, as we get into it, I just want to define what worship is. Um, worship is to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. To regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. We see in these passages, in verse 3 particularly, um, that true worship is costly to the worshiper. Now, a bit of context on this. So the parallel passages found in, in the other Gospels for, the, for, for this, for verses 3 to 9, can be found in Matthew 26, 6 to 13, and John 12, 1 to 8. Now, there are a few differences in how the story is told in each of these Gospels, but I'm just going to give you guys a few points that make me um, convinced that this is one account and not two or three different accounts. So the first is that, the first is that it happens in Bethany. There's reclining at the table. There's a woman that comes in. She comes in with a large quantity of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Jesus was anointed. Judas Iscariot spoke out, or Judas Iscariot and the other apostles spoke out all thought against the actions of this woman, saying that she's being wasteful and asking, her, asking 
themselves or 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 her why they why she couldn't sell it to help the poor. And Jesus in all these accounts responds by saying, Leave her alone. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. All of this compels me to believe that this is one event. And so as we as we get to this, we see the cost that this woman bears as she does this this act of worship or as she brings this act of worship to Jesus. Firstly, she risks her reputation. This is because she's a woman. A woman in this setting in Israel at the time would not be where men are while they're having dinner. She wouldn't be sitting around them. She wouldn't be reclining at the table. Women would only come in to disrupt if they were serving. So this woman is here at the risk of tarnishing her reputation. This would have been very embarrassing. The other way in which this cost her is obviously through money. This was an expensive ointment. Now, it took, the, the disciples mention that um, it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was a, ways, was a day's wage for a laborer. So if you worked a day, you would receive a denarius um, as your payment, as your salary. Now, you have to remember that in the Jewish context, these guys used to work six days a week. And so if you take out 52 seventh days, what you left with in a year is about 313 days. And so if this ointment is worth more than 300 days worth of work, that means it's essentially a year's worth of salary. That's, that's how much it costs, and that, that's what this woman comes with to Jesus. And she breaks the jar. She broke the jar or the flask, signifying that she had no intention at all to save it for later. She wanted to pour all of it out on him as she anointed him. She wanted to express her worship to Jesus with all of it. Now, what we, what we see from these two things is that she clearly understood that worship wasn't about her. It wasn't about what she had. It wasn't about who she was. But it was about Jesus. And she loved him, and so she thought it was worth it doing that. She thought and believed that it was all truly worth it. But we see that there are some who didn't think that it was worth it, clearly. And this leads us to our second point, which is that true worship will not always be acknowledged or accepted by others. We see in verses 4 to 4 and 5, um, it says that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this woman could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Isn't it incredible that they weren't even complaining about the smell of this, the smell that this ointment was about to fill the room with? I mean, they, were, they had just gathered and they were trying to fellowship and eat. What they instead focus on is that they complain about how expensive of a waste it is and how the money could have been used to help the poor. Is there anything wrong with what they were complaining about? I wouldn't necessarily say that. They had their hearts in the right place. And in John's account, it specifically calls out Judas, who's the one who speaks. But Mark and Matthew show that he wasn't alone. Whether outwardly by speech or inwardly by thought, 
The disciples asked themselves why this woman would waste such an expensive ointment on this act. They clearly are infuriated, and they feel like they could have done better with it. But what's happening here is that they fail to see that this woman is worshipping the Lord, and that she is giving him everything that she has, doing everything that she can with the time and resources that she has. And just a bit of context as well, in, in, in John's account, I think it, it points out that this is Mary, uh, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Uh, this is the same Mary who, in Luke 10, <clears throat> sits at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, while her sister Martha is working hard. She seems to understand that devotion to the Lord is more important than anything. She's willing to risk getting a reputation of being lazy and now being wasteful as well. The disciples, I want to assume, have their hearts in the right place and they want to steward the resource as well and make sure that those in need can benefit as well. But at the same time, they are failing to recognize and align their hearts to where Jesus' heart is concerning the matter. Have you guys come across some of these people who can look at how others are doing things or how others are serving and just complain all the time? Are you that person? Now there's a quote by J.C. Rowell. He's a, he was an old Anglican preacher. And he says concerning this, that there is never wanting a generation of people who decry what they call extremes in religion, and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation in service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. But if he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He is beside himself. He is out of his mind. He is a fanatic. He is an enthusiast. He is righteous overmuch. He is an extreme man. In short, they regard it as waste. This was the disciples' hearts in that moment regarding this woman. And I think we as believers and people in the church, we need to check our hearts. The disciples should have checked theirs but they didn't. And as we see her worship, as they see her worship, they're not able to see and comprehend the sincerity in the act of love, devotion, and sacrifice. But Christ is, and this is how he responds. This is the third point. True worship is recognized and esteemed by the one who is being worshipped. This is how Christ responds. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? So Jesus defends her. He defends her actions. He sees her heart and her sincerity, and that's what makes him glad. Not the fact that she disrupted a dinner as a woman. Not the fact that she just poured out a very expensive flask of ointment. Not the fact that she poured all this ointment on his head, 
uh, and other accounts will say his feet. I would imagine that a large part of his body ended up being drenched anyway. You pour that amount of ointment over the head of someone. But he's not worried about that. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Have you ever had someone do something beautiful for you? I asked this question in the beginning, and I'll share another story. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, about a month ago actually, um, on Valentine's Day, uh, said that she, all she had asked for was flowers. Right? Now her Valentine uh, had decided to put together a playlist of songs with meaning from every song um, that he had chosen for words that he felt for her. Right? Now, all she asked for was flowers, but because of the sincerity of that act, she felt like that, that just made her day. She didn't need flowers anymore. She didn't need chocolate. She didn't need to go out and do things. She just appreciated the sincerity of that act of kindness towards her. You look past the act and you see the heart. When you look past the act and you see the heart, you can see the sincerity of someone, someone's actions. And Jesus affirms this act of worship because he sees the heart. He looks past the disrespect and the wastefulness because she was being sincere. But he also doesn't look past the concerns of his disciples. He says, for you, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Here he doesn't engage their hearts about why they're not seeing the sincerity of this woman's act of worship. Neither is he saying that the poor are not to be cared for, looked after, or loved. There will be ample opportunities for them to be able to do this. They, they still live in a broken world. And we know 2,000 years from then that poverty has still not been eradicated. What he does do, though, is he reminds them, as he did back in Mark 2.20, that he is not going to be with them forever. And so they should take every opportunity to worship him. Jesus obviously knows, what, he knows exactly what is about to happen to him. So he knows that they don't have much time left with him. He says, she has done what she could. This also reminds me of uh, what he said to the widow in the temple in Mark 12, 43. He says, truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she has, everything she had, all she had to live on. The act of worship by this woman can also be seen as prophetic in that it points towards what is coming. The disciples should have known this. Jesus had told, told them about his death three times. In fact, the third time he mentions that as we go to Jerusalem, this is going to happen. And so they should have known and they should have aligned their hearts and seen the sincerity in this act of worship. But Jesus says, continues as he's responding to this, he said, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now anointing a dead body 
was a normal part of the burial process. However, it normally happened after death. By not knowing this, or maybe she did, as she was spurred on by the Holy Spirit, this woman had prepared Jesus to be buried. To die and then be buried. And what an event that was, or that would be in the history of the church. An event between God and his people. And I'm reminded of John 3.16 every time I think about it. The fact that um, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What a story. I think about, I think it reminds me also of this, this hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, where we see in the first verse how the cross shows God's love in the act of Christ dying on the cross for us. The second verse, we see how believers recognize their sin as part of why Christ had to die. In the third verse, we see how we actually don't deserve it because there's nothing we do in the process, but we trust in the finished work on the cross. So we see this great story of redemption where Christ would go to die and to save us and reconcile sinful men back to God. There's nothing we do in and of ourselves. All we have to do is respond in, in faith, to believe in him and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. This act that this woman has prepared Jesus for guaranteed salvation for all those who would believe. And Jesus sees this woman's sincerity as she worships him and ties that event that's coming to it forever to the story of how he will reconcile all true believers back to him. He says, and I truly say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This has been recorded in two of the gospels. That's how we know that what he said has been fulfilled. And we still read it too today. Every time we read about his anointing, his preparing, his preparing for his burial, we see this woman's story alongside of it. And so it will be told forever. Jesus recognizes and affirms the woman's act of love, devotion, and sacrifice towards him. So we have those three points. True worship is costly to the worshiper. True worship is not always acknowledged or accepted by others. And true worship is recognized and esteemed by the one who is being worshipped. So what do we learn from this? So we, firstly, we do, and we can't ignore the fact that this passage does point towards the fact that Christ is about to suffer and die. Um, that time has come. And so for believers, what does this mean? If you're an unbeliever today, you, you have to realize and understand that we are fallen. What happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 is that there, there was a gap. So God, God, after creating man, was in communion with him. But what happened at the fall is that sin entered into the world, and so God separated himself from man. So there's this like gap. It's not as wide as my arm, as this gap between my arms is. It's as wide as you could possibly imagine. 
but this act that Jesus would then do on the cross reconciles those who believe back to him. And so the question for unbelievers would be, do you love Jesus? Because he loves you. He says in John 14, 6 that uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and you can't come to the Father except through him. And so if you want to be reconciled to the Father, you have to accept this free gift of salvation that Jesus gives. The time, isn't, the time we have it isn't guaranteed. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Hebrews 3.15 reminds us of that. It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And so trust in him. The same way the Israelites trusted in the blood of the lamb as they smeared it on their doorpost. Trust in Jesus. Because by his blood, the judgment that will come for sin will pass over those who believe. That's the hope that we can find in him. For believers, it's the same question. Do you love Jesus? And if you do, I pray that if you haven't, you would come back to a true and sincere heart of worship towards him. Our lives need to be filled with worship. When last did you do something beautiful for Jesus? Where you weren't concerned about your reputation? Where you weren't concerned about how much it would cost you? Whether in time, in money, in your effort. When last did you do that? If you, happen, if you haven't, I'll challenge you today to repent and to come back to him. The cross isn't just for salvation once it, it is once and for all, but it's a place that, as, as sinners, because we are still broken and we still live in these sinful bodies, it's a place where we continually go back to, to find hope and to find forgiveness. And so it wasn't just for the, the day you got saved, but it's for you each and every single day. We have to realize that worship isn't about us. It's not about others around us. It's about God. And so when we come to worship, not just uh, when we worship together on a Sunday like this, but as we worship through our lives, I pray that we may have this gift of hindsight, the fact that Christ acted first, God acted first, he's the one who loved us first, and so we simply come and we respond. We remember everything he has done for us, and we worship him. Worship isn't just about singing or giving or serving in church. Yes, there are moments like we just saw with, with this woman that are acts of worship in the church. But worship is also a posture that we should aim to pursue in all the areas of our lives. Where everything we do is for his honor and his glory. And so we try to do these beautiful things for him. And as we try to do that, may we be as sincere as we possibly can be. And he will be honored. J.C. Rao, continuing on commenting on this passage, says that if a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? He will fear wasting time, talents, money, affections on the things of this world. He will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior. 
we will fear going into the extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure. But he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. And so may we not be afraid of giving up everything we have to him who gave us, who gave up everything to win us back to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you and we thank you for this reminder of what true worship is. The fact that we are to regard with great respect, honor, or devotion. We have to bring that all to you, Heavenly Father. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you, will, you may work in our hearts um, and that we may be reminded of the fact that in worshiping, we bring you more than a song. Singing itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within for our hearts, into our hearts. We, we want to come back to you in a heart of true worship and realize that it's all about you. We're sorry for everything we've ever made worship out to be that's wrong. And we want to realize and be reminded that it's all about you. And I pray that for every single person who listens, uh, who's here and who's listening uh, back at home, that we may realize who you are and that we may live our lives in light of you.